Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. It is good to be with you and to open the scriptures with you this morning. We are continuing in a series that we're calling Fire in the Closet. And by way of reminder, or if this is your first time tuning in with us, I just want to let you know that as we we entered into this unusual season, this challenging and unusual season that COVID-19 has introduced into our culture and into the globe, we said we need to be a people that go and stir up fire in our prayer closet, that we need the presence and the power of God to meet with us in our homes, in the secret places. And so we've been preaching through the Psalms and we've been reading through the Psalms as a community. I just want to encourage you that if you've not jumped into that experience with us or you've kind of fallen off, I'd invite you to re-engage and to finish strong with us. Sunday morning, Psalm 103 is the Psalm that we're on. We're reading one at in the morning, one at noon, and one in the evening as we continue to soak in God's word and let it inform the words of our own prayers as we go to the closet and we meet with him. So we're on this journey wanting to encounter God in a real way, knowing that if, if we are meeting with him and experiencing his fire in our hearts, we will be able to continue to move forward in the midst of all of this confusion in a way that brings him glory and that continues to shape us into the likeness of Jesus. And this morning, in the psalm that we're going to be examining, it is going to be a word to us about how do we navigate troubling times? How do we navigate troubling times? And particularly what this psalm is going to provide for us is the posture by which we navigate troubling times, the activity as we're engaging in that posture, and then ultimately the outcome, that if we adopt this posture and we engage in this activity, it's going to show us how to navigate these sorts of troubling times, and we will experience a really profound outcome together. And so as we go to our prayer closet, we continue to let the text lead us. We're going to understand what it is to pray our way through troubling times. Our text this morning is Psalm 25. I invite you to follow along with me. I'm going to read the text for us this morning, and then we're going to plunge in to make sense of the posture, the activity, and the outcome of prayer in troubling times. Psalm 25, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention this morning. Psalm 25, starting in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. If you're into underlining, I would underline none in your Bible. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. 
My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. You hear those words? This is the context of the psalm, lonely and afflicted. Verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. See, Psalm 25 is written out of the context of loneliness and affliction and trouble. That this is a psalmist that is in a narrow place that is struggling and trying to make sense of the heartache and and the battle with enemies that want to exult over him. This is the struggle and the journey that he is on. And as he engages this context, he's going to do so with a particular posture and a particular activity that give birth to to a beautiful outcome. So what is the posture by which we as a people pray in the midst of trouble, of loneliness, challenge of difficulty and despair. The posture of this text is a posture of waiting. The first thing that we are called to do as we pray through challenging times is that we wait. Did you hear it? Did you hear it in this text right off the bat in verses three through five? We got it twice. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. And in verse five, lead me in your truth and teach me for you're the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all day long. The psalmist is inviting us into a posture of waiting, which incidentally, none of us like. Can we just be honest? We hate waiting. I was reminded of uh, one of my favorite children's books that I'll read occasionally with my kids. Oh, the places you'll go. Maybe you got a copy of it when you graduated from high school or, or some other moment in life. We like to hand this one out. Oh, the places you'll go. And I love the way Dr. Seuss talks about it, uh, about waiting. He says, I fear that I was moving towards the most useless place, the waiting place. And this is the waiting place. Check out this picture, the people's expressions and what they're doing here. And this is what he says. It's people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no, waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting waiting for the fish to bite or wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. And I love that Dr. Seuss calls this a useless place and he puts these pictures on everybody's face. They're just blank stares. As you can tell, they're all thinking, this truly is useless, a waste of my time to be waiting. And that's really how most of us feel. Yet here's this psalmist that's saying, okay, here's the posture. The posture is that you have to wait. Why is it that we despise waiting like we do? Why is my least favorite errand in the, run, in the world to run going to the post office, the most inefficient place on the planet? I stand in line and I tap my foot and I think, I can't believe this. Why do I hate it like I do? Because it dethrones me. It's not about my agenda and my timing. I think I'm so important in all of my self-importance and all of my pride. I wait on no one. I'm a man of Amazon Prime. I'm a man of Amazon now. If I touch the button, I want it at my door and I don't want to have to wait. 
And we live in a culture that has, has ushered us into a place where we have forgotten the posture of waiting. We don't know how to wait. And incidentally, it, 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 it's hard to wait at any moment, but now I want you to feel the context within which this psalmist, in which David is saying, wait, he's saying, wait in the midst of your trials. Right there, where it hurts most, where you feel most lonely, where you feel most pressed in, right there in the midst of your disappointment and your longing and your heartache, wait. That's the posture that he's inviting us to. The word in Hebrew, literally, it's like a, a river water that begins to be dammed up and begins to pile up. He says it's, that's the word. It's like we're piling up, waiting with anticipation and hope for what's coming next. He's saying we must engage that sort of mindset because, interestingly, in verses 3 through 5, he's saying, will you teach me your ways? And then in verse 8 and 9, this is what he says. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his ways. It is waiting that dethrones us and humbles us. It prepares the way for us to become teachable. When we don't get to continue to manage and manipulate and push forward, we don't get to hit eject on the moment, we don't get to just tap our foot with impatience, but we slowly adopt a posture of waiting, that's the position of humility and teachability, where God can begin to lead us, lead us into something new and different. You see, if we don't adopt this posture, the cost is high. The cost is high. The foot tapping proud or unteachable and will miss what God is doing. When we encounter our trial, or our difficulty, or our disappointment, and we just start thinking, how do I get through this as quickly as possible? What quick fix will soothe the pain and make me not feel it or deal with it so that I can just get around it? Which incidentally is most of our mindsets. And if we're, if we're really honest, it's what most of our prayers sound like. We go to the prayer closet and we go, God, make it all go away and get me through it as fast as possible. And he's going, would you first adopt the posture of waiting? Slow down. Pay attention. Don't waste a good forest fire, my friend Bay Rummel would say. When we begin to wait and pay attention to the pain, we realize that a forest fire, though it looks so bleak when it strips, when it rips through a forest and, and pulls the leaves off of all the branches and leaves them looking black and charred. Let me read to you the actual results of a forest fire. Releases seeds and otherwise encourages the growth of certain tree species. It clears dead trees and leaves so that new plants can finally grow. It breaks down and returns nutrients to the soil. It removes the weak or disease-ridden trees, leaving more space and nutrients for the stronger trees to grow up. It keeps trees thin and open, letting more sunlight in, and they will stay healthier longer as a result. And it overall improves wildlife habitat. Bay has often said to me, don't waste a good forest fire. That in the moment where the flames get hot, we think, how do we make this end as quickly as possible and move on so that I can get back to my agenda and quit waiting? And God's going, no, 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 no. Engage the posture of waiting. You might miss the very thing I'm intending to do with you if you rush past this. I'm intending new growth, greater health. Don't rush. Adopt the posture of waiting. Have you paused, waited, and actively learned from God what he's intending to teach you in this season? Or have we fidgeted and foot tapped 
and said, let's get on to the next thing. Let's get back to normal, which incidentally, we all desire. But in the waiting, we must engage with God in this posture and learn. Long for what he has for us. And incidentally, when we begin to wait and we don't waste the forest fire in our midst, an activity begins to bubble up. Did you hear it in this text? We got it three times in this text. What is the activity that takes shape in our waiting? It's this. We begin to confess. We confess our sin. We begin to repent in God's presence. That the heart that is properly postured before God in the midst of trouble begins to see its own sin clearly. It's not just the sorrows of the world. It's actually my heart's response in the midst of the sorrows is broken and ugly. Let me read it to you in the text, and let's make sense of this together. Look back with me at verses 6 and 7 first. It says this, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then a second time in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then again in verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. This psalm has been called a penitential psalm because it is a psalm of of repentance. If this psalm is anything, it is a psalm of repentance because the activity that David is engaging in his waiting is dealing honestly with the fact that he is contributing to the brokenness of the system. It's beautiful. He is neither playing the victim nor playing God. You see, we're tempted to play the victim in moments of trouble and just going, well, everything has gone awry. It's just one trial, one heartache, one disappointment after another. Woe is me. Now, David is honestly naming the fact that there are trials and struggles in his life, but he is actively taking responsibility for the sin in his life that is being exposed in the midst of it. You see, he's not playing the victim. He's recognizing the sorrows are drawing out of him things that were always in his heart, and he's dealing with them. Yet he doesn't play God and say that it's all because of his sin and brokenness. He doesn't say, I'm responsible for holding everything together. He says, no, there's some brokenness. I love that in the same breath in verse 18, we get both of them. Consider my afflictions and my troubles and forgive my sin. David's not playing victim and he's not playing God. He's just being a human being trying to make sense of the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in his heart. And he's coming to clarity about those two things because he has adopted the posture of waiting, of being with God in the midst of the challenge. I just want to give you some encouragement about your repentance in this season. I think we have lots to learn about repentance. And if I could just encourage you to a couple things from this text pointedly. The first is this. It must be personal. All of your sin and my sin is personal against the God who loves us and has come for us. There's something that could be lost on us in the English that I want to draw out for us in verse 7b. He says, he says to God this, according to your steadfast love, remember me. Incidentally, in the Hebrew, there's this really clunky phrase that when he says me, it's actually two pronouns held together and it's me, you. Remember me, you. According to your steadfast love and mercy, remember me, you. In essence, what David is doing is he's leveraging covenant language, steadfast love, and he's saying, God, remember me, you. We have a thing here. We're covenanted together. 
You have loved me like a spouse and called me into covenanted relationship with you. And the way that I could say my Ashley about Ashley, but no other Ashley in the world, what he's saying is we're with God in such a way that we go, it's me and you. You're mine. I'm yours. David is coming to God and he's undone by his sin because this is deeply personal. And he's, he's broken as a result. In verse 11, he says, pardon my guilt for it is great. It's heavy. I just want to encourage you, when was the last time in your closet, as you're cultivating fire of God's presence, when was the last time that you really were broken personally with God? Saying to God something like, God, I am so sorry for this. The thing that is showing up as you wait and you pay attention to what this pandemic is drawing out of your soul. Things that I've been confessing are, God, I am sorry that I am so selfish. There's so much human suffering. The whole globe is cloaked in suffering and struggle. And I have a hard time getting past my front door with the way I feel, with the way I think about trouble and difficulty. I think about me 10 times for every time I think about the struggle of someone else. God, forgive me. Forgive me for thinking about me most, God. Or it might be laziness. So many of us, we've said, if I just had more time and more space, I know that then I would be able to pray and read my Bible. Life is just so hectic. I have events every night and I have all of this stuff. And then everything gets cut out. And it may be that you need to go to your closet and say, God, I'm sorry that I just don't care about spending time with you. It needs to be personal. It needs to feel the heaviness of it so that we would repent and turn away from it. So frequently, we just, we just give short shrift to our confession of sin and our repentance because it's, it's not personal and it's not genuinely broken. Maybe it's our discontent. Maybe it's our anxiety. But would you take whatever it is that's bubbling up in the season and go to your closet and set your gaze on God and, and allow it to be as personal as it is, God, I have sinned against you. Would you forgive me? Forgive me what's bubbling up out of me in the midst of this challenge. You see, the alternative, he mentioned the alternative in verse 3. He used the word wantonly treacherous. He says, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And the word for treacherous there means to cover with a garment. To be treacherous means to hide what's really going on, to smuggle in what's really happening. And so many of us in our posture with God and with the community around us, we are treacherous because we don't really want to be honest about what's happening in there. We don't really want to deal with what's happening in here. And so we become victims to all that's happening out there. And if we're really going to have fire in the closet, we have to wait and then we have to confess. We have to say no to treachery. Brothers and sisters, would you in a new and a full way live in the light? In your phone call this week with your huddle, would you name honestly what's happening in there? In the moments of waiting and paying attention, where is it that you need to say, God, I need your forgiveness. Forgive me that this thought, this, this, this movement, this reality, this action, this anger, that this could be the way that I'm responding to you in the world. Brothers and sisters, let's live in the light. We wait. That's our posture. We confess That's our activity. And then I have good news for you about the outcome. The outcome is that we fear. We finally fear God, and there are beautiful ramifications to this. 
Look back with me at verses 11 through 15. It says this, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul, the one who fears the Lord, his soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring will inherit the land. And then climactically and counterintuitively and beautifully, verse 14 says this, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to him his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. You see, the outcome is that we begin to fear God. And when we fear God, we don't fear anything else. We know the one who holds all together. We are trembling in his presence and he is drawing near to us as our very friend. Can you imagine the benefits of a friendship like that? It has been a great joy for us to, you know, Russell was just singing. He's about to come lead us in worship again. And he's standing right over, sitting right over there. Russ has been one of my dearest friends for nearly 20 years. And it's been a particular privilege in the season of quarantine to have our families be quarantine buddies. You know, we're the safe place for one another. And so we've spent time in each other's yards playing. And, and uh, he gave me a little haircut. That's why I'm not quite as ragged today. They've shared meals with us. We've played volleyball together. We've laughed. The benefits of having friends that are so generous and gracious and faithful. It's like It feels unending, like I could list it out, all the ways that my life has been blessed by being friends with Russell and Paige Willingham and their their family. But the reality when I sit with a text like this, however many excellent friends we could stack up, when we look at this text and we go, "But, but the Lord will come and be your friend, what I've begun to realize is that every other friendship pales in comparison. Who has the power and the wealth and the generosity and the grace kindness and the forgiveness flowing from unending wells. There's nowhere else you can go. There's no friend that can be more tender and close that can care for you like him. And as we wait and we confess and we break in his presence, we begin to fear him. We begin to have reverence for him and he wraps us up like a friend. And this reality is fulfilled most beautifully and truly in Jesus himself, Jesus Christ, friend of sinners, who waited on God perfectly. He waited for his direction and guidance. And even as he was falsely accused, he waited in the midst of disappointment as his disciples scattered. He waited. He didn't hit eject on pain and suffering. He didn't sidestep it. He waited patiently in the midst of it. And you know what's so stunning about Jesus is he didn't have anything to confess. There was nothing wrong in him. There's nothing for him to say, I'm sorry for. But he didn't play the victim. You know what he did? He played God. He took responsibility for all of it. All the stuff that you and I can't take responsibility for. The disease and the heartache and the brokenness and the personal sin of all of humanity. He said, put the curse on me. He didn't play victim, but he didn't play God. And he was rejected by the father that had never looked away from him so that he could befriend you. So that the father could say, I will lavish you with goodness 
for all of time that your feet will be released from the net. You will be delivered. You will be whole. Your soul will be at rest, as he says in this text. Your soul will rest in well-being. Brothers and sisters, the sorrows of our age have only reached us by the hand of a sovereign and a good father. I know that there are trials and difficulties that feel painful. But would you wait? Would you wait? None who wait on the Lord will be ashamed. Wait for him. And in the waiting, would you deal honestly with all of the stuff that's being drawn out of your heart in this season? Wait, confess, and know the friendship of God. Let me pray for us. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you are so good that you can and you do paint beautiful pictures with dark colors. Thank you that trial and sorrow and loneliness and despair for those who are in Jesus are not the end of our story. It's not the last chapter. It's not the way the story ends. And so we have good reason to wait. And I pray that in the waiting, you would be making the men and the women of Seven Mile Road look more and more like Jesus, that we would freely confess and not just confess, name it and breathe it in the light, but repent, turn from it, run in a new direction, run into the arms of our Savior who beckons us as a friend. We thank you that this is true. Thank you that you've shown us how we can navigate troubling times in our closet. Would you pour out fire on our prayer closets this week as we wait, as we confess, and we experience your friendship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.